friends. Thank you. So this morning, it's so great to have you all here and to um, see guests and children and just a wonderful um, experience to be with each other today on the Lord's Day. Uh, the Lord's Day in Christian history has been the day that the Christian church has celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And most people, I think, think we do that on Easter, and that's what Easter is for, and that is what Easter is for. But uh, uh, according to church history, every Sunday is Easter. Every Sunday is a celebration of the risen Christ. So we gather this morning as a church family to celebrate that. If you're a guest with us this morning, I hope that you feel welcome and comfortable. Thank you for being here. My name's Kyle. Um, if you're new, I'm the past, one of the pastors here. Um, and so it's a great delight to have you in our church. Um, please, if you feel like you have any questions or have any needs, um, you can come to me with them after service, and I'd be glad to get to know you and talk about those things with you. Um, at, at, um, at our church services, we've been going through a letter in the New Testament. In the New Testament, there are many letters um, written by the, um, mostly the, one of the 12 disciples or apostles of Jesus Christ. And the letter that we're in um, is called, in, in the Bible, is called First Peter. It's the first letter that Peter writes, and the main subject of First Peter basically is he is writing to a church who is suffering, and he's aiming to encourage them in their grief and in their trial. Um, and that's what the, the basic text of First Peter is all, all, is all about. I want to introduce to you um, a character in church history that might, you might find a little puzzle, puzzling and a little odd. Um, Simeon the Stylite was an ascetic monk who lived in modern-day Syria in the 5th century A.D. He's mostly known for having lived, now listen to this, he's mostly known for having lived on a platform on top of a pole for 37 years. <laughs> Can you show the picture? Um, this is a, an artist's rendition of what that um, potentially was like for him. This is uh, uh, Simeon the Stylite. Um, he was the first person to have this bright idea, and um, believe it or not, there are many that followed him, and they call themselves stylites. Um, they are ascetic monks that erect themselves on top of a pole, and they live, they live there, um, they literally live there day and night, 24 hours a day. Um, Simeon was seeking to escape the increasing number of people who pursued him for his wisdom and for his prayers. He had a busy schedule, Right? Maybe one day I'll be perched on top of a pole. <laughs> you'll come to church seeking prayers and wisdom, and you'll see me in a telephone pole, and that's where I'll live. <laughs> he was seeking um, to have more time to consider God, to contemplate his word, to meditate on scripture, to pray, and to praise. Um, his pillar at first was nine feet high. So not that high, maybe not high enough. So over time, he actually made it higher. He lived on different poles, and finally, the last one he ended up on, um, he was perched 50 feet in the air on, one of a, pole, on a pole like this, on a platform. <clears throat> Believe it or not, in spite of this kind of like extreme type of escaping civilization and society, he actually made time every day to preach the word and to receive pilgrims that would seek his counsel and wisdom, and they would pretty much climb a ladder up there to go and see him. Um, and he made time for this every day. Um, once he became ill, um, so ill that, they, that bishops thought he was going to die, and they were urging him to come down 
and he basically insisted on remaining, and he says, I entrust my life to the Creator. Uh, Simeon would receive food and different items he would need from just neighborhood boys that they would pull things up by pulleys, um, and that's how he would get his food, and I would imagine take away other things that he doesn't want to... <laughs> He doesn't want up there with him. Um, but that, that was his life. Simeon the Stylite died on September 2nd, 459. I'm not making this up. <laughs> this is real. Um, this is in church history. This is an example, of course an extreme one, of a person who wants to live the contemplative life. A life that is in solitude, meditating on the promises of God in prayer. <clears throat> it's a life, by the way, that I've been somewhat, though obviously in a much less extreme example, been urging you to live as Christians, to take the word of God in silence and prayer, to be alone with him even daily, to meditate on what he says about you, about himself, about life. And this I've suggested to you is the medicine that we need for our own personal trauma and trial and loss. The word of God circulating in our souls daily. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law is word. He doth meditate day and night, for he shall be like a tree beside still waters, whose, who bears fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. You see, this is the promise of God when we think about what he says, Rather than what we think about life, we need to correct what we think with the truth so that we're not tormented by fear and anxiety that often is the result of trauma. We move to resolve our grief often. We develop attitudes and behaviors. We become cynical. Um, we, start, we stop trusting. Maybe we become aggravated, kind of prickly types of people. Maybe we medicate our pain through overeating or overdrinking or whatever it might be, oversleeping. I've suggested to you that even as Christians, we're prone to go back to these old fears that come from these old traumas and we get triggered behaviors that deal with the pain in a common way. We're used to doing it like this. And I've suggested to you that the Bible has told us that when we do this, it compares it to a broken cistern that can hold no water. In other words, it doesn't work. It doesn't give us life. Something is still missing. A cistern in the Old Testament is a large kind of piece of um, um, pottery or a large compartment for water to be filled up with. So a broken cistern holds no water. And friends, oftentimes the medications that we choose to heal our weary souls are just that, broken cisterns that just don't hold water. And scripture says that the daily meditation on God's word is the whole cistern that holds water and teaches us to believe him and to trust him. So, so far, it might seem to you, this is what we've been talking about for weeks, exposing our emotions and our brokenness to the word of God and let it be retrained by what God's word says. And so, so far, it might seem as if the contemplative life is the only medicine that I'm suggesting is the medicine for our weary souls and our tormented emotions. Climb atop that pillar, um, separ separate from the clamor of society, 
and your soul problem is going to gradually transform itself. Right? There's more than that, though. Soul rest is not only found in our contemplative closets. Okay? Soul rest, soul healing, life is not only found in a certain escape from society. Our ability to really set our hope on the appearing of Jesus, that is, if we're going to have a spirit fixed on the abiding Christ and his presence and be in his presence, and if that presence is going to result in a union with him, a love with him that brings us peace, if we're really going to experience that, it's not just contemplative discipline, but also missional living that provides us with this healing to our soul. Missional living is what this morning's sermon is about. And by missional living, I want to include three components, which are fellowship, compassion, and evangelism. Fellowship, compassion, and evangelism. And and hopefully by the end you'll know what I mean by those terms. Missional living is not just individual. It's not just internal. It includes a life outside of myself amongst the other people. It means that there is more to spirituality than simply my silent interior life. Okay? There's more to it than that. And the, the first thing I want to suggest to you is that soul healing and soul strength in trial is found, number one, in fellowship. We have a, a tendency, I think, as human beings to hide our emotional pain. Don't we do that? At times, our hiding soul grief morphs into a certain version of isolation. We sort of just disappear. There's a psychological tendency, I think, to retreat from company when we feel desperate, when we hit a wall. I remember hearing C.S. Lewis said when he hit his wall, he, he, wanted, he wanted to be around people, he just didn't want to talk to them. <laughs> Isn't that odd? And he's right. So we sort of disappear. One biblical, you know, there's Bible examples of this behavior too. If you recall the prophet Elijah, his life was threatened by the wicked queen Jezebel, and he began to fear um, what would happen to him because of her hostility toward him. So Elijah, run, Elijah becomes depressed and anxious, and what he does is he runs away, and he hides under a tree. Right? This is Elijah's solution. He runs, he isolates, and he hides. Another less known example of this in Scripture is the prophet Jonah. Um, <clears throat> God tells Jonah, if you know the prophet Jonah in the Old Testament, he said, God tells him to go and preach to the city of Nineveh. And he says, I don't like them, they're wicked and evil, so I'm going to go in the other direction. So he gets on a boat and he leaves in the other direction. Then all of a sudden, this great squall, he's on a boat, and this great squall and this great storm comes, and everyone's afraid for their lives. And finally, Jonah says, throw me into the sea, right? Get me out of the picture, and you'll be okay. Toss me into the dark and quiet and lonely despair of the sea. You see, he saw the outcome of his tragedy and just wanted out. He wanted to be by himself. And isn't that our instinct? 
Now, we might not entirely disconnect. You might be here this morning in this group, and that's what potentially you might be doing. You're here, but you're not here. See what I mean? So we still might robotically go to work or come home to our family, maybe even go to church. But we're not there. We're there, but we're not there. Have you guys ever had a cramp in the middle of the night in your leg? I get them more now that I'm older. Um, you get one in your calf. You ever get one of those? And your foot just goes like kind of forward like that? It does that. And you, and you think it, your, your instinct is to sort of just kind of let it happen. But what do you have to do to get rid of it? And it go, almost goes away instantly when you do this. You pull your foot, right? And when you pull your foot, it's gone. But instinctually, that's not what we think to do. Our instinct isn't to pull against it. That hurts, right? But it's the only way to deal with the cramp. If you don't pull back, it's going to stay. The pain's going to stay. You need to pull back. You see, friends, I think fellowship is much the same thing. When we go through trauma and trial, it's like our, uh, we have this instinct to isolate. But what we need to do is we need the, the people of God, the, blood, the word of God coming from his people, from his pulpit, to heal us. And it's hard because we just want to be alone when we feel awful, don't we? And it's hard, but that's the, in, that's the instinct we need to pull against. And that's our need for fellowship. If we're going to develop our faith in the appearing of Christ, if we're going to become strong in spite of the trials of life, if we're going to grow in a union and in a love and friendship with Jesus, it requires fellowship. You can't hide. Or it is like that cramp in your leg that won't go away. I want to call this meaningful membership in the body of Christ. Okay, so you're already thinking I'm, I got an agenda here but I don't, <laughs> right? You can be a member in any local church, not just this one. This isn't me trying to fill up our church with more committed people. This is in the Bible. It's the antidote to the spiritual problem, the soul problems that we carry, okay? Meaningful membership in the local church. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, let us draw near to God. What, what's near God in Psalms? Pleasures? are at his right hand, right? Let us draw near to God. He's dealing with a soul problem. If you want to have soul joy, you need to be at the right hand of God. Draw near to God, he says, with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure blood. As you approach God, if you have trusted in Christ, your conscience is pure. Your sins are forgiven. There's no guilt in your approach. So you're, you're let go with all of the hang-ups of your past mistakes, of the things that you've done wrong, that you know you've done wrong, that you're guilty of. Draw near to God and you receive his forgiveness and his love. Your heart develops hope and faith, you see? Let us hold unswervingly, in verse 23, so Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Hold unswervingly to this. And how do we do this? Well, verse 24. Let us consider 
how we might spur one another to love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. You see, friends, when you look at Hebrews 10 and its context, it's prescribing something for the weary soul. And the prescription is to be at the right hand of God. At the right hand of God, you find forgiveness, you find hope, you find peace. But how do we end up at the right hand of God? Well, Scripture tells us through the local church. As we spur one another on to love and to good deeds. That's what strengthens our faith. That's what helps us come out of hiding when we go through personal traumas. So this passage plainly is speaking of the local church, the context of the assembly, right? The local expression of Jesus' body. That as we are in the assembly, our hope is strengthened, our love is strengthened, and we're spurred on to good deeds. It means that outside a meaningful participation or membership in the local church, we lack that other sharp side of the sword, of soul health. And that, that other side is contemplation. This side is fellowship. By, by membership, friends, I don't simply mean that your name is on a piece of paper at a local church. Okay? And I don't even mean that it means you've shown up to a church and you're sitting in one, maybe even every week and listening to the pastor. It is those things, but it's more than those things. First of all, what I mean by it is that it is a formal and a mutual understanding of accountability, okay? You and the church have decided to be an assembly, to live together, to live out all of the one another's of Scripture, right? Now, do you recall the, the passage that I read in the beginning about the 99, the shepherd leaving the 99 to go after the one? There is an obligation that I have as a shepherd of a local church to care for you guys. To, as, as I see maybe you headed for danger, or even as you see me headed for danger, we're looking out for each other. We're calling out to each other. Now, friends, I have a specific and particular responsibility to you all first. You know, there are many churches throughout the world where one might leave their 99, but that's why that church has their shepherds and those members to look out for each other. I have a specific responsibility to know if there's a hundred sheep in this church, when is one missing? The only way that I can know that is if there is a formal and mutually understood relationship of accountability. Do you see? So when the Bible teaches this, um, it's not informal. It's not simply going to this or that church. It is a connection. It is a commitment, you see? It's the flock saying to each other that we are committed to life together. It doesn't mean you can never leave this church. <laughs> of course not. Um, but it does mean that as long as I'm a Christian, I am going to be with God's people somewhere. Does that make sense? So it's these things, but it's also vulnerable. It's formal and mutual, but it means that it's also vulnerable and therefore responsible. What I mean by this is that we're not simply to occupy a seat, 
but we are to actually care for and nurture each other's lives. Now, of course, even in a, we're not a very big church, we certainly can't do this for every person sitting in this room, but we can with some of us. We can look out for each other, can't we? We can develop meaningful friendships around Christ and the gospel. And that's what I mean by this, to develop a Christ-centered friendship with each other, and in so doing, we develop friendship with Christ. I'm going to say that again because that's powerful, and this is kind of the heart of what what I'm getting at. When I develop friendship with God's people, I am developing friendship with Jesus. And what is at his right hand? Pleasures forevermore. My soul's life. You see, friends, when I develop friendship with you, God's people, I develop friendship with Jesus himself. You say, well, I'm not Jesus. Well, okay, well, if you don't believe me, if you think I'm lying, that's good, because you should never just believe me. Let's go to the Word, okay? Acts chapter 9. You remember this guy, Saul, right? He did not like Christians. He hated their guts. He decided that he was going to go on a personal mission to hunt them down, to imprison them, and even sometimes kill them, okay? So he's doing this for a living. He's making money off of this. And he's going around doing this. So he's on a road to Damascus, and this is in Acts chapter 9, where Jesus finally said, enough of this guy with what he's doing. I'm going to get him, okay? Meanwhile, it says in Acts chapter 9, verse 9, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why do you persecute me? Now, at this point, if you don't know anything about the Bible, Jesus has resurrected from the dead, and he's sitting at the right hand of God. So Saul is getting this kind of supernatural revelation of Jesus speaking to him. Now, if I'm Saul, I'm thinking, I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting these people who call themselves Christians. Jesus is speaking to Saul, but asking him, why are you persecuting me? But Saul was persecuting the church. Friends, coming to faith in Christ makes his people so one with Christ that to love the church is to love Jesus. To persecute his people is to persecute Jesus. To have friendship with his people is to have friendship with Jesus. You see what I'm go- where I'm going here? So if we decide to live at arm's length with God's people and not have meaningful Christ-centered friendships with God's people, then that means we are keeping Jesus at arm's length. Do you see the implications of this? Our soul's life is only granted to us at his right hand. And that has to mean that as believers in Christ, we need each other. We need to speak to each other the words of Christ. Matthew chapter 25, if you need a little more convincing. Then the righteous will answer him. I read this, I think, um, in the beginning. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and give you clothes? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? You see, here's this man 
that is standing before the Lord, and the Lord is saying, you visited me. Enter your reward. You visited me while I was sick, while I was in prison. You gave me clothes. You gave me food. Enter into your rest. Here is your reward. And here is this righteous man saying, when did I do this to you, Lord? When did I give you clothes? When did I drink you, give you drink? When was I your friend? And the king will reply, truly I say, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters, you did it for me. You see, friends, your life as believers in Christ is found in friendship with Jesus. And your friendship with Jesus is found in friendship with his people. See? Ephesians chapter 5. Be filled with the Spirit. Speak to, no, to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. You see, that's the life. That's the power. This is more than just, you know, Matt is friends with Mike at church. It's a friendship that speaks psalms, hymns, spiritual, the word of God into each other's lives. That's our healing. That's a divine friendship that God is calling us to. So God speaks to us through believers as we join to them with each other in the expression of the local church. Friends, when we love God's people, when we love his church, that's what the church is, it's God's people, we love Jesus. When we care for God's people, we care for Jesus. When we speak to his word, his word to one another, we speak to Jesus. When we slander each other, we slander Jesus. You see how this works? That's why disunity does not work in the local church. To have a vision of Jesus, to be in his full presence, to have a great affection for him requires fellowship with his body. Not simply occupying a seat or being a name on a list, but meaningful, meaningful membership, participation, friendship in the local church, the body of Christ. Our instincts tell us that in our tragedies, we need space. We need time off. We need room to breathe. But friends, might I suggest to you that you need the exact opposite of that. We need to pull against the cramp, not curl with it. Now, I'm not saying in times of pain or grief that we don't go to silent, isolated places of contemplation, but we don't only go to those places. You see, that's my point. <clears throat> I'm saying that we need more than simply that. We need a life together is what we need. Number two, our mission, <clears throat> and therefore our healing, is found in service. It's found in fellowship, and it's found in service. Okay, Service being the demonstration of love and good works to God's people in God's world. I'll say that again. Service is the demonstration of love and good, good works to God's people and to God's world. Again, Hebrews chapter 10, be reminded. Let us consider how we might spur one another on to love and good deeds. These are actions these are demonstrable actions of love towards God's people and God's world. Not just God's people, but God's world. People that don't know him, lost people, people that are in need, starving people, people that need clothing. When we do this, we demonstrate this sort of service, life comes. 
healing comes. Okay? We draw near to God and we have our hope deepened in his promise. We receive his pleasure in our, con- in our collective demonstration of love for people in need. That's what this means. We do not demonstrate acts of compassion um, or service when we're strong. We become strong by our acts of compassion and service. Did you see that? We don't demonstrate acts of compassion and service after we're strong. And that's how we think, right? I'll get strong first, and then I'll serve. I'm too weak right now to show acts of love and compassion. When I'm strong, when I'm healthy, that's when I'll do it. I'll do it then. But friends, might I suggest to you that your strength is found by inverting that. You actually get health, you get strength when you serve anyway, in spite of how you feel. Our souls are made strong. Our souls are given hope by a deepening, uh, they, excuse me, our, our hope is deepened and widened by acts of love and service. Our instincts tell us to retreat and to wait, to demonstrate all of this, and one day when I'm healthy, I'll do it. But we often forget that we're healed in the process of doing it. Isaiah chapter 58 is a verse that I'm sure many of you know. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, here I am. Okay, right? I'm at his right hand. I'm getting his peace and hope and pleasure. His presence is with me. Why? The, the contemplative life. I'm calling on him. But it's more than that. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. When we demonstrate love and acts of kindness, our night becomes light. That's the promise of God. Friends, it's more than just acts of kindness. This is talking about attitudes too, right? Finger pointing, speaking evil, malicious talk. When we stop these things, and not only stop those things, but we add love. So we're helping the poor. We're feeding the, the hungry. What does God say? He says, here I am. When we do those things, he says, here I am. And at his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Friends, you are withholding soul healing when you withhold service and love. And I do the same. When we show acts of love and kindness... We find our soul. And why is this? Because as much as if you, you have done this to the least of my brethren, you have done it unto me. When you help buy someone's groceries because they're in need, you are helping buy Jesus' groceries. You see? When you visit someone in prison, You are visiting Jesus in prison. And when we do this, when we actually remember, intentionally remember, I'm not loving just this person, 
I'm loving Jesus Christ, friendship develops. Isn't that how friendship develops? When we serve a person, when we spend time with a person, when we encourage a person, when we give gifts to a person, when we help them, when they're in trouble, isn't that how friendships develop? Well, when you do that for God's people and God's world, you are developing a friendship with Jesus Christ. And at his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Your soul gets healed. When God's people demonstrate this sort of compassion in all its forms to each other and to the needy, friendship with Jesus is the product. It is what is produced. And there we find healing and rest and peace and hope. Finally, the mission that brings us in closer friendship with Jesus Christ is our fellowship, is our service, but it is also, if you are a believer in Christ, it is our evangelism. Okay? And by evangelism, I mean it is the verbal telling, the vocalizing, the communicating between you and someone else the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is you telling them what Jesus has done for sinners like us. That is what evangelism is. It is the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. Can I suggest to you this morning that the purpose of the church is twofold. The reason we gather has two reasons. Number one, it's for the God's people. If you're a Christian, you're God's people. It's for us to grow in hope and faith and love, right? That's why we gather. We do that through prayer, through the word, through encouraging each other, right? Through fellowship. So we gather for that purpose, for God's people to grow. But the second purpose that we gather is so that people who do not know Jesus Christ yet will come to know Jesus Christ. That God has given us a mission to show compassion to people by going to them and not waiting for them to come to us to let them know that Jesus Christ demonstrated his greatest love for humanity by dying on a cross for their sins in their place. That their chief soul problem is not a bad marriage. It's not that they don't have children or a bad job. It's that they are separated from Christ, the greatest friend, the greatest father, the greatest bridegroom. They're separated from him by sin, but because he loved you so much, he sent his son to die for you, to reconcile you. See what I mean? Now I'm preaching the gospel to you, that you already know it. Maybe some of you don't. But this is what I'm talking about, that our healing And our soul life is actually found when we find people who do not know Christ yet and make his great gospel known to them. We find peace in our hearts. And this is why I presented to you Luke chapter 15. And let me read it again so that you can be reminded. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep? And when he finds it joyfully, puts it on his shoulders, he goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and he says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Friends, there's a lot going on in the scripture, but it seems very clear to me that this lost sinner is someone who has not come to know Jesus Christ by saving faith yet. 
It's a person who is coming, repenting of their sins, coming to know who Jesus is, and being included into his sheepfold. The faithful shepherd leaves the 99 to go after lost sinners. And what's followed by it? A great rejoicing. There is a great rejoicing in heaven. There's a great rejoicing in our hearts when this happens. So that means that rejoicing in me is connected to my proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. And that if I neglect it, that my soul is going to kind of be on its own. It's going to be immersed in its own problems. It's going to forget that Christ is coming back. The greatest demonstration of love for people around us is to make known to them the good news of Jesus Christ. So it means practically, think about the implications of this, if there is greater rejoicing in heaven over the conversion of a lost sinner than the righteous 99, then that means that we have to think about them as we live life together. That we need to even think about how we do church, what time we do church, bring down barriers so that people can come to this church and hear the gospel. We're not friends. That it means that we're not here primarily to just make ourselves comfortable, but, but so that sinners who might spend a Christless eternity separate from God will be saved. Friends, do you know that there, there are probably about 3% of the population within an hour radius of this address that know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? 3% out of a million people that if they died this moment would be separate from God. And we hold the gospel, the demonstration of his love, that man and woman can be reconciled to God through the death and resurrection of Christ. We hold it in our laps. And the Bible says that when we proclaim the gospel to people who need the gospel, there is rejoicing. It gives our hearts joy. And I can even suggest to you, even when it's rejected, your hearts will have joy. Because the gospel has been preached and proclaimed. I still have friends. I still have family that don't know Jesus Christ. That have rejected the gospel message. And I bet you do too. And maybe this morning, there are people even in this church that don't know what to do with Jesus Christ. Friends, can I suggest to you that he's the answer you've been looking for. He is your life. He's your peace. He's your joy. There is a God. There is a creator. He made you. And your greatest peace, your greatest joy is found in right relationship with him, not away from it. We worshiped everything but him, and we need to return to him in repentance and faith and, and cry out to God and say, God, you're my God. You're the, there is only one God, and there is only one mediator between me and you, and that's the man, Jesus Christ. I'm finally just going to say it. Amen? Oh, come to Christ if you don't know Christ. And friends, if you're a Christian already, would you remember the urgency, the importance of the gospel that we carry? It's the power of salvation for those who believe. I mean, do we really believe that? It's time. You see, we think, well, I'm not doing well. You know, I I just, I feel awful. All these things, life has happened. I've become cynical. I'm angry. I'm depressed. I'll do that again when I'm happy, when I'm good with Jesus. 
And again, I would remind you, friends, might I suggest that your soul, life, and health comes by doing that. That's where you find it. That's where you'll be at God's right hand. Because inasmuch as you've done this to the least of my brothers, you've done it unto me, find friendship with Christ and life with Christ and soul transformation with Christ, not by not doing these things, but by doing them. And friends, can I suggest to you that your night will become light. Your darkness will rise like the noonday. Don't wait. Don't wait. Rejoice with me, says the shepherd, because I found this lost sheep. Divine joy from being in the presence of God. We find it when we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to people who need it. Oh, and I know that's true, don't you? If you're a Christian and you've been a Christian for some time, there's something magical about it. There's something supernatural about it. That when I share the love of Jesus Christ with people, my anger and my depressions and my fears sort of just relax. Isn't that true? If you're a Christian, you know it's true, right? <laughs> but for some reason, we, we just always shrink back into forgetting how true that is. The cramp comes, and we still don't want to pull the foot. <laughs> right? Oh, pull your foot. Pull, let's pull our feet together. That's weird. It's a weird <laughs> thing to say. But you know what I mean. Right? <laughs> our problems might not go away, but friends, our souls will have light. Won't they? Sometimes the happiest moments of my life have not come because everything's going great. You know, I got lots of money, and, you know, usually if that's what I'm focused on, even when I have lots of money, I'm not happy because I'm worried about losing it. Something's going to happen, right? Something's going to break. You know, I got, need more money because if something breaks, then I got to spend half of it, not all of it, right? So we start thinking we're always paranoid and anxious, right? Isn't that true? But, but friends, for some reason, the, the happiest moments, moments of my life, it's not when I've had a girl or, you know, all these different things or lots of money or esteem. Or, it, it, they haven't come through those things. They've come when I've had a contemplative relationship with Jesus Christ and I'm living for him on mission. When I do those things, I have two very sharp sides of my sword and my soul is strong. That's what happens. And friends, can I invite you to the same? Now's the day. Today's the day. Now's the time. It doesn't matter what happened to you 10 years ago or 5 years ago or 5 minutes ago. Now's the time. Go after it. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, don't waste another moment justifying why you shouldn't. Pull your foot. <laughs> All right, this is the last sermon I'll ever say that in, okay? <laughs> to love the lost is to love Jesus. To love his people is to love Jesus. To serve the needy is to serve Jesus. Friends, we're not to wait until we're emotionally and spiritually whole to fellowship, to serve, and to evangelize, to proclaim the good news. But rather, we become emotionally and spiritually whole by our fellowship, 
our service and our proclamation. We're not to wait to display affection until we feel affection. How many people have done that in marriage? I don't want to demonstrate love to my wife until I feel love for my wife because I'll feel like a hypocrite if I do that, right? It's not real. So we withhold affection until we feel affection. But how many people know that when you demonstrate affection in spite of how you feel, that your feelings are spurred on, they're made alive, they're ignited with affection for that person? It comes by the dem- a, a demonstration of love. It's the same thing in our relationship with Christ. So we're not to wait to display this sort of affection until we feel it but we feel it when we work it. Amen? <clears throat> Contemplation and mission. Two sides of the sword of your health in Christ. Let's pray.